time I have an opportunity. It's good to have my wife Beth here today. Have you ever lost something that was very valuable to you only to find it again? Perhaps it was a wedding ring that you misplaced or your wallet that you left at the gas station. Most of us who are parents have had the experience of being with our small child in a public place like the airport or department store. And we turn away for a moment and look back and they are gone. And so we immediately start to look all around for the child. And if we don't find him or her quickly, uh, our hearts begin to race, don't they? And uh, this fanatic search continues. We ask other people to help and our minds immediately go to the worst case scenario. What if someone's kidnapped my child and I'll never see him or her again? So the pace of the search intensifies as does our heartbeat until finally over the loudspeaker you hear, uh, will the parents of Jessica Sherman please come to the service desk? And so you go racing to the service desk and when you see your missing child for the first time, how do you feel? There is this incredible sense of relief and thanksgiving and joy and that's only if they're missing for 10 minutes at Walmart. So there are these very intense feelings of joy when you lose something or someone precious to you and you find it again. Well, in our passage from God's word this morning, Jesus uses a similar scenario to describe the feelings of God and the angels in heaven whenever one sinner repents. Even though God is sovereign in the salvation of his people, he still rejoices when he finds one of his lost sheep and they come to him in repentance. Our passage today tells us what our attitude should be towards our non-Christian friends, acquaintances, co-workers, and schoolmates who are spiritually lost and desperately need to be found. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, third book in the New Testament, Luke 15, and also locate the sermon notes in your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, there's one, I think, on the back of the pew in, in front of you. The setting of our text this morning is stated in the first two verses of this chapter. Follow as I read verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. As many of you know, tax collectors in Jesus' day were ostracized because they were considered immoral and dishonest, and and most of them were. And we see here in verse 1 that there were other types of sinners gathered around Jesus to hear him teach as well. We know from other passages in the New Testament that our Lord spent time with prostitutes, thieves, demon-possessed people, the, the lowest of humanity. He also spent time with people who had serious diseases like leprosy, people who were shunned by the masses. Such associations were repulsive to the scribes, Pharisees, and religious leaders of that day. They went to certain passages in the Old Testament which teach us to be separate from sinful people, and they misinterpreted those passages to teach that we should totally isolate ourselves from the world and have absolutely nothing to do with sinful unbelievers, especially socializing and eating with them. It's one thing to bump into a wicked person on the street corner or at the market, but it's quite another thing to have them into your home or to go into their home to enjoy a meal and conversation. 
As far as the scribes and Pharisees were concerned, to associate with and have dinner with sinful people was a severe form of compromise. And that's why verse 2 says they muttered, or some of your translations, they grumbled among themselves. That verb muttered indicates they were uh, murmuring to one another under their voice. This Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners. As far as they were concerned, the only thing wicked unbelievers were going to get from God was judgment. Instead of teaching there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, many strict Pharisees boasted there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who's obliterated by God. And sadly to say, many of them were actually looking forward to that judgment day. So it's in that setting that our Lord goes on now to teach us some profound truth about the nature of God. It's in this setting of these self-righteous religious leaders condemning Jesus for... um, welcoming, eating with, and hanging out with the worst of sinners, that uh, Christ goes on to give us three parables which show us God's attitude towards repentant sinners as well as his attitude towards unrepentant, self-righteous people. It's very important you understand that the three parables in Luke 15 that we are about to study are merely an elaboration of verses 1 and 2 here. So with that in mind, let's look at the first parable of the lost sheep, verses 3 through 6. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Now, a hundred sheep was the average size of a flock in Jesus' day, and a count was taken nightly. Sometimes the sheep belonged to one individual. At other times, they belonged to the entire village or, or several families in the village. In this particular parable, one of the sheep goes missing, and so the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. Locating a lost sheep could be a very long and dangerous task. Shepherds were known to to follow a straying sheep's footprints for miles across the rocks and crevices of the desert, sometimes risking their own lives. And verse 5 says here that when the shepherd found the sheep, he would joyfully place it on his shoulders and carefully bring it back home. And then he, along with his friends and neighbors, would have a big party and rejoice that the lost sheep had been found. What does this parable teach us about the nature of God? Verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, many scholars agree that because of the setting of verses 1 and 2, that last phrase in verse 7, the 99 righteous people who don't need to repent, is a sarcastic reference to the scribes and Pharisees. We can't be dogmatic here, but that is the interpretation I lean towards. Romans 3 verse 10 tells us there is no one righteous, not even one. But the scribes and Pharisees sure thought they were righteous. They did not begin to see the depth of their own sin and their need to repent. So here these religious leaders thought they were so close to God and valuable to him, while wicked people had no value to God. But Jesus says the exact opposite here. 
God values one repentant sinner more than He does 99 proud, self-righteous people who don't think they need to repent. Another thing that I think we learn from this parable is that God takes the initiative in our salvation, which is one of the themes of the book of Luke. Luke 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Aren't you thankful that God seeks the lost? (laughs) Much like the shepherd left the 99 and went off to earnestly search for his one lost sheep, so Jesus actively pursues his lost sheep until he finds us. God's searching for his lost sheep is also implied in the next story as well. It's the parable of the lost coin. Look at verses 8 through 10. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So here's a woman who had ten silver coins. The Greek word that's used here is drachma. It refers to one day's wage. It's implied in this text that this is all the woman had. This was her life savings. Ten silver coins, and she loses one of them. She loses one-tenth of her life savings. And please understand that the average Palestinian home back then was very dark. They usually had only one window about 18 inches in diameter and a small door. And thus we read here that the woman had to really search for this lost coin. She took out a small lamp and she began to sweep the earthen floor and search carefully until she found it. And what does she do when she finds it? She calls her friends and neighbors and they have this time of rejoicing and thanksgiving because the lost coin is found. And Jesus tells us that's what heaven is like. Verse 10 says, In the same way I tell you there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one lost sinner who repents. And again, don't overlook the significance of the number one. It only takes one repentant sinner to get all of heaven rejoicing. One repentant sinner is precious to God. The third parable is by far the most familiar. Most of you have heard the story, the parable of the prodigal son. Some of you here today have lived the parable of the prodigal son or daughter. In fact, there's a sense in which all of us have been prodigals to one extent or another, have we not? I could spend several sermons on this one parable, but we only have time this morning to briefly review it. It's the story of a father who had two sons. And um, one day the youngest son asked his dad for his part of the inheritance. Now, that was unheard of back then. No son would ever do that. It is complete rejection of the father. He wanted his father's money and gifts more than he wanted his his, his father, I, I, I want to be done with you, Dad, but give me my money. And after he received it, he left home and for a distant land where he squandered his wealth and he lived an indulgent, wicked lifestyle. And after the money ran out, a severe famine hit the land and this young man got a lowly job of feeding pigs out in the field. And keep in mind, Jesus is telling this story to a Jewish audience. Pigs were unclean and detestable in the Jewish Mind. A person could get no lower in Jewish society than feeding pigs. 
But this young man does go lower because he became so hungry and destitute, he actually ate the same scraps of food that he was feeding the pigs. After some time of this kind of living, he thought to himself, my father's servants live better than this. They at least have plenty of food to eat. Here I am starving, eating pig slops. And even though I'm no longer worthy to be his son anymore, I'll go back and confess my sins to my dad and beg him to let me be one of his hired servants. Most of you know the rest of the story. Let's begin um, verse 20. So he got up and went to his father. While he was still a long ways off, his father saw him, and he was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now, there's some debate here among scholars about, um, about this parable. Some believe that this wayward son here is a reference to Christians who backslide and they indulge in sinful behavior for a while. They lose their joy and close uh, fellowship with God and life is miserable until they return to the Heavenly Father in repentance and fellowship is restored. And, and all of us who have been Christians for a length of time have experienced that, have we not? I mean, we've all strayed from God and indulged in sin and eaten pig slops for a while. And some of us have paid a high price for our sin. But sooner or later, if we are genuine Christians, we come back to the loving arms of the Father and sweet fellowship is restored. So the backsliding Christian interpretation of this passage is one possible meaning here. But I personally think it's a secondary application. I agree with the scholars who say that this wayward son was a non-Christian when he left home. He wanted nothing to do with his dad. And his return describes his conversion experience. There are several reasons I hold that view, one of which is what verse 24 says about this young man. Look at verse 24 again. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Those same words, dead and alive, lost and found, are used elsewhere in Scripture to contrast the way we were before we were saved to after. Before conversion, we were spiritually dead in our sins, but now we are alive in Christ. Amen? Before we were lost spiritually, and now we are found. Whoever this parable is referring to, one thing is sure. God welcomes repentant sinners. And to emphasize that truth even more, we have the second half of the story, which describes an unrepentant sinner. It's the story of the older brother. Let's read, starting in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called out to one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But he had but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, again, there's some debate about who this older brother represents. Some say it's a reference to Christians who don't go off and sow their wild oats and backsliding. But other scholars say this elder son represents the self-righteous scribes and Pharisees. They were extremely religious and outwardly moral. Did you notice in verse 29 how this, this older brother describes himself to his dad? All of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. The scribes and Pharisees did their best to keep every minute external detail of the Old Testament law. They slaved away at trying to please God in their own strength in order to impress other people and earn their entrance into heaven. There was no joy in their obedience. It was only done out of duty, not delight. And they thought they were virtually perfect, as verse 29 implies. I've never disobeyed you, Dad. And did you notice how the older brother responded when his younger sibling came back home? Verse 28 says he became angry and he refused to even go to the party. Verse 30, he doesn't even acknowledge this young man as his brother. Instead, he refers to him as this son of yours. Not my brother who I've been praying for and I've missed and I'm hoping he would return home, but this son of yours. And so out of self-righteous anger and jealousy, the older brother doesn't go to the party because the Pharisees didn't associate with wicked people who came from such depraved backgrounds, even if it was their Jewish brother. And again, this is a picture of the type of self-righteous, legalistic, judgmental people who don't make it to heaven. Because they don't begin to see their sin and their need of repentance. They think they are better than everyone else. Churches are filled with those folks this morning. They think they deserve to go to heaven because of their good works and their strenuous efforts to please God. For sure, they see other people's sin, but not their own. And worse yet, they get angry when God shows mercy on the undeserving. They get mad when God forgives and welcomes repentant sinners who maybe spent years living in wickedness or sleeping with prostitutes or eating with the pigs. And not only uh, does God forgive all of their sins, but he welcomes them with open arms. Remember, the father in this parable represents God. He throws a party. He puts a ring on their finger and the best robe on their back and sandals on their feet and has a feast. Bible commentator Ken Geyer writes this, and I quote, A robe, a pair of sandals, a ring, a feast, symbols not only of forgiveness but restoration, gifts of grace lavished on the one who deserved them least, unquote. And when self-righteous legalistic people see this, they think to themselves, That's not fair, God! 
Here I've tried my best to be very moral and religious and pleasing to you. And now you're throwing a party for this sinner instead of me. Not fair. Now, let's pause for a moment and consider what all three of these parables in Luke 15 have in common. In all three, something was lost. In the first, it was a sheep. The second was a coin. The third was a son. In all three stories, the thing that was lost was very important and precious to the one who lost it. And in all three stories, there was great rejoicing and celebration when that which was lost was found. And please don't forget the purpose of these three parables. Remember back in verses 1 and 2. The primary reason Jesus taught these stories was to show a bunch of self-righteous scribes and Pharisees how God relates to and views sinful people. Here they were thinking that God detested all evil people and that God wanted nothing to do with sinful unbelievers. And what Jesus is showing these religious leaders is they did not have a clue who the God of the Bible really was. The reason Jesus spent so much time with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners is that is precisely the types of people he came to save. Keep your finger here and turn back a few pages to chapter 5 of Luke. Luke chapter 5. And I'd like to read verses 29 to 32. Then Levi, now Levi was a tax collector. Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. Again, we're at verse 29. Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus says here, he did not come to save the righteous. That is those like the scribes and Pharisees who think they're righteous. Those who are proud and self-sufficient and who do not see their sin and their desperate need for a savior. I did not come to save those. Rather, Jesus said, I came to save sinners. I came to save people who've been eating pig slops of life and they are weary and tired and humble and broken and poor in spirit. I came to save those who, with God's help, see their sin and their need for a Savior and they realize their only hope is Jesus Christ. I came to save those who value me more than they value my gifts. I did not come to save self-righteous religious people. I came to save humble, broken sinners. And what we learn from these three parables in Luke 15, and you can turn back there now, is that sinful people matter to God. God loves sinners so much that He sent His one and only Son, Jesus, to die as an atoning sacrifice to pay for our sins so that we could be rightly related with Him. And God actively pursues a relationship with His lost sheep and He seeks us out. That's clearly implied in the first two parables, but it's also implied in the parable of the prodigal. I mean, in that story, the father is obviously looking for his son, is he not? Every day he keeps searching and looking far out into the horizon. Is my boy coming home today? And that's why we read in the text that while the son was still far off, his dad runs out to meet him. Because he's been looking for him. 
Those of you parents who have prodigal children, you know this experience well. You pray for your child every day. You want him or her to return to God more than you want anything in life. I know that because I have a prodigal. And so you keep waiting and hoping and praying and hurting and longing. You know what this dad was like. God is a seeking God. He takes the initiative and draws us to himself. In love, he helps us to see our sin and our need for a Savior. He then helps us to repent and place our faith in Christ. Thank you, Lord. It's all of grace. And whenever one sinner repents and comes to the Father through faith in Jesus, he welcomes that person with open arms, and there's this great celebration and rejoicing in heaven. If you're here today as a non-Christian, The Bible teaches you're like that wayward prodigal son who is far from God, whether you realize it or not. And in order to be rightly related to the God who made you, you must humbly acknowledge your sinfulness and repent. That's another thing all three of these stories have in common. The necessity of repentance. In verse 7, there's rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who does what? Repents. Verse 10, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. In verse 21, the prodigal son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I just want to come back and be a slave, a hired hand. That's repentance. Repentance is not a popular topic these days, but oh, how important it is. Um, That's why on your sermon notes on that one page of the sermon notes, I have several verses about the necessity of humility and brokenness and repentance. Repentance is realizing the depth of your sin and that your sin separates you from God. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says that repentance also involves feeling godly sorrow over your sin and wanting to turn from it with God's help. So God welcomes repentant sinners with open arms. It doesn't matter how badly you've blown it. No sin is too great. But make no mistake about it. God will also judge proud, unrepentant sinners. In Luke 13, verse 5, Jesus says this, and I quote, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. James 4, verse 6, God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the brokenhearted. There are at least three groups of people that I want to connect with in the sermon today. Prodigals, older brother types, and genuine followers of Christ. For those of you who are genuine followers of Christ, here's the application. Could it be that we need to cry out to God this morning to give us a renewed love for lost, sinful people like Jesus models for us in this passage? Could it be that there are some Christians here today who are more like the Pharisees than you realize? 
You've taken Bible verses that tell us to be separate from the world too far, and instead you've isolated yourself. You have very few of any non-Christian friends. You hang out with your family and little group of believers, maybe here at church. I'm curious, do you look down on the homeless and drug addicts and criminals and immoral people like you're somehow better than they are? If so, you have some Phariseeism in your heart. Those are the very people Jesus came to save. And some of you used to be just like that before your conversion. Could it be that some here today need to repent of your self-righteousness and ask God to give you a renewed love for sinful people and a renewed courage to build relationships with them and share the good news of the gospel? Some of you need to get to know your neighbors better or your co-workers or your schoolmates. And you need to realize that the only reason you're not the worst sinner in the world is the grace of God. So there's no room for pride, judgment, and self-righteous isolation here. Just grace. I know I speak for the leaders of this church when I say that we want Southwest Harbor Congregational Church to be a grace place. To be sure you have to keep calling sin, sin. And begging people to repent. But we also want to show grace to sinners and celebrate when they do repent. Amen. There are others of you here today who don't know Jesus in a personal way. You don't have that relationship with Christ through repentant faith. You've never been born again. Now, some of you, like the scribes and Pharisees, don't see your sin. You're the older brother type. You realize you aren't perfect, but in your mind, you sure don't deserve God's judgment. And if that describes you, I simply remind you that God's righteousness involves so much more than outer actions. It involves motives, desires, and attitudes of the heart. That's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever been really angry with your brother, you're just as guilty as a murderer. You've killed them on the inside. And if you've ever lusted after another person who's not your spouse, you've committed adultery already in your heart. According to that standard, I've committed murder and adultery. And so have most of you. If you've ever had feelings of resentment or envy or jealousy or revenge or have thoughts of worry and ungratefulness, if you've ever loved anyone or anything more than you love God, that is idolatry and cosmic treason. Those are all sins that separate you from God and cause you to desperately need His forgiveness. Your religion and your outer morality and coming to church every Sunday will not get you into heaven because those, there are devastating sins in your heart. So if you're the older brother type, ask the Lord to show you the sins of your heart. The older brother was wicked, but he didn't see it because of his legalistic efforts to try to please God so diligently every day, to please his father. But others of you here today do see your sin. I've had people sit in my office when I was a pastor and weep over their evil behavior of the past. They think they've blown it too badly for God to save them. They think that their sin is too great. Jeff, you don't know what I've done. There's no way God could forgive and welcome me. There's no way He would throw a party for me. Maybe for someone else who's more deserving, but not for me. And if you think that way, you do not know the God of the Bible, my friend. 
You don't understand the concept of grace and the depth of His love for broken, sinful people. Get this. God throws the biggest parties for the people who are least deserving while the Pharisees stand on the sideline in anger and scream, unfair. God throws the biggest parties for the worst of sinners who repent. It's called amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch like Jeff Sherman. It's interesting to see how people react when they hear the story of a serial killer or a child molester coming to Christ in faith. Many people say, no, no, no way that's going to happen. They are repulsed by the very idea that God would show grace to that person. That's Phariseeism. It's time for some of you here today to come running back into the arms of the loving Father Maybe you are a backsliding Christian who has been living in sin far too long and you need to repent. And if the truth be known, you are miserable. Or maybe you are a non-Christian who needs to be born again and experience salvation for the first time. Could I encourage you to spend some time maybe later today looking over the lessons from Luke 15 there on your sermon notes. Don't look at it now, but, but, but a bit later. The title of my sermon today is How to Start a Party in Heaven. Could it be that we will set off a party in heaven this morning because God is moving one or more of you in this room right now to repent and come to Jesus in brokenness over your sin and by faith accept what He did on the cross as a full payment for all of your sins. If that happens today, you will set off this huge party. God and the angels in heaven will be like that shepherd who found his one lost sheep. Or the woman who found her one lost coin. Or the father who found his lost son. Incredible joy and celebration. In a sentence, what Jesus is teaching us in this Luke 15 text is this. God loves sinful people. He actively pursues a relationship with them. And there is a party in heaven every time one of them repents and comes to Jesus in saving faith. Let me say that again. God loves sinful people. He actively pursues a relationship with them. And there is this huge party in heaven every time one of them repents and comes to Jesus in saving faith. Aren't you thankful that we have a God like that? (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Let us pray. Lord, uh, I just want to pray right now for my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm, I'm in the midst of them. I'm guilty. Forgive us of being self-righteous and hypocritical and overly judgmental of unbelievers in this world. And, and, and being too isolated from people who desperately need you. Lord, would you break our hearts over that self-righteous separation and give us grace to love sinful people and build relationships with them and share the good news. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I pray that Southwest Harbor Congregational Church will become a grace place. Lord, I pray for the parents who have prodigal children right now. Their hearts are broken. Would you encourage them that there's still hope because the last chapter hasn't been written if their child is still alive? Because, Lord, you are a seeking God. 
And give those parents grace to keep loving those prodigals and praying for them. And being there with open arms when you do that work in their hearts. And Lord, I pray for unbelievers here today, whether it's prodigal children or it's the older brother type, self-righteous. Would you open their hearts to see their sin and bring them to repentance and saving faith in Jesus? And then we will celebrate. And there will even be more celebration up in heaven. Thank you, Lord, for this great passage. Help each one of us to become more like Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save the lost. And we'll give you the glory for what you do in us and through us and to us. In Jesus' name, amen.